Hello everyone, I'm Jen and welcome to another episode of Monogamish Pod. On this week's episode, I'm continuing the conversation on Mental Health Awareness Month by talking to DA, a black pansexual polyamorous woman who has borderline personality disorder. We talk about how BPD and other mental health issues can affect polyamorous relationships, and there are some book and social media recommendations to hear as well. Content warning for this episode for conversations about suicide and suicidal ideation, self-harm, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, and loss of a family member. Without further ado, here's the conversation with DA. This week's episode, I'm giving you an episode I already recorded six months ago, but had to re-record because Mercury was doing Mercury things. And here we are. It was also eclipse season six months ago, actually, now that I think about it. That was a wild time. A very wild time. But that's fine. We are in May. It is Mental Health Awareness Month. And of course, last episode, I had Marjani Lane on talking about mental health and the things that they go through with ASPD, OCPD. We talked about MST. Wait, there's a lot of abbreviations here. I noticed that, but that's okay. Today, we're going to throw some more abbreviations around because that's very necessary for us to exist as people talking about mental health because everything is shortened in some way or the other. Do we just call depression D now? Oh wait, no, I'm thinking about kinky shit. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> but now that I've gotten my awkward spiel out of the way, I do have a guest with me today. You're not just going to hear me talk about my own shit, which is boring. I know. But today I have DA with me. We are going to talk about mental health awareness and how it affects polyamory in our relationships and our lives. And yeah, because mental health doesn't just affect one portion of your life. I guess it could if you didn't live. Anyway, DA, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I had a therapy session this morning, so that was helpful. I found myself freaking out that I don't remember where I put my notes from last time because I like to have just some kind of, I lose my words. So I'm like, okay, what are my disabilities? I don't remember the names, but yeah, I'm, I'm having one of those moments, but I found something, so... I found my little list, so I'm feeling a little bit better now. Good. See, I probably should have had a therapy session this morning before this, but I did watch a TikTok instead about a man who was performing in therapy that made me think about some things about how people That's who say, enough. like people talk about going to therapy and doing the work and then they don't realize that they're not actually doing anything. They're just performing at how they think therapy is supposed to go. And... That's a mind fuck when you get to that point. But anyway, so you have some notes, you're feeling refreshed and ready. For context, D and I do actually know each other. We've hung out in person, we've touched in real life, not sexually. Although, was it sexual? I don't know. You might have to tell me. I'm not sure. Yeah, see, we're But if it was, I welcome it. <laughs> that, that's gonna be an off-air conversation. Y'all, y'all too nosy trying to get deep in the business. <laughs> so you all know me, Jen, cisgender, pansexual, polyamorous woman depression, anxiety, probably some other stuff that's not diagnosed because diagnosis of things is expensive. Thank you. So DA, how are you showing up in this conversation today? I'm showing up as a cisgender, pansexual, depressed person with anxiety and borderline personality disorder. I'm also showing up hella black because that's how I'm going to show up everywhere. <laughs> Say it loud. <laughs> 
So that makes sense. So see, another thing for you guys, BPD. That's what that's what that one is, just yeah. so you know. Okay. A lot of people confuse it for bipolar disorder, but that's just BP, I think. Yeah. So BP1, BP2, and then there's BPD. Gotcha. And the running joke about borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder, because they do have some similar symptomology, is that BPD is bipolar, but faster. Bipolar, but faster. So it's like being on speed while being bipolar. In a sense, the other name for borderline personality disorder is emotionally unstable personality disorder, which I like better because borderline refers to like between neurotic and, and psychotic, and that's like very old and very inaccurate. But yeah, the swinging between the pendulum of being stable and being unstable happens quicker and can happen repeatedly within a shorter time frame than it would for a person who has bipolar disorder. Gotcha. Gotcha. And we don't see emotionally unstable personality disorder really show up in media at all. See, I'm using, I, I know words now. We do, do actually. Them. Girl Interrupted, Euphoria. Ah. There's been a few, but it's always the harshest representation of what BPD can look like that is shared. So they usually use like the most disruptive, most explosive version of BPD or experience of BPD. Whereas there are people who are implosive like me most of the time. I will implode before I explode. And there's four different types. The names aren't coming to me now, but there's there's representation. It's just usually horrible and paints people with BPD as being absolutely horrible, manipulative people, which is not necessarily true. Gotcha. Gotcha. See, when you mentioned Girl Interrupted, I was like, I haven't seen that movie in years. But for some reason, I thought she was bipolar. I guess just because that's the more common you know, thing that showed in me. Oh, this person's bipolar. People say that all the time. Like the weather is bipolar, which is a whole separate conversation we can get into about using terms that describe people's actual mental states in benign ways. And I think there's a lot of training that's being done at the corporate level, actually, to take those things out of our language, especially like in the workplace. Hey, you probably shouldn't say the weather's bipolar. You could just say, you know, the weather's unpredictable. That's kind of what you meant. Or wishy-washy even. Wish you know? Yeah, there's a lot of other ways to describe things. So there are all these different types of borderline personality disorder, and that's cool to know. So when were you diagnosed, if you don't mind me asking? I believe I was diagnosed in 2012. I was, oh, it was a rough time. <laughs> it was a rough time. I was living with my now husband, and his sister lived with us. And I was an intern teacher in my first first or second year and finishing up my master's program. And everything just crumbled one day. It, it just all dropped. And I was hospitalized and diagnosed there. And when the doctor told me what he was diagnosing me with and he gave me this pamphlet, about BPD, I looked to it and I was like, oh, that's what that's been all this time. Wow. <laughs> that's what, that's where these things, got it. Okay, this makes sense. I like that I now have some kind of framework to use to help me through this because just thinking I have depression and anxiety and not realizing that these other symptoms are, they, they exist and they're a part of something that can be... I won't say cured, but can be helped to reduce the symptomology was helpful, but it took me a long time to get the help that I need. So there's that. 
health system. 2012 is 10 years ago. And I'm pretty sure you were alive for a little bit longer than 10 years. This didn't happen at birth. You were living with somebody who was your husband now. I feel like you were a little older than five when this diagnosis came down. Yeah. And what's, what's wild is I can remember seeing symptomology when I was around five, but I don't believe that I think 12 is the youngest. It's either 12 or 14 or something like that. But like preteen age is when you can actually be diagnosed with this. Gotcha. All right. We talked about diagnosis. Were you polyamorous at the time that this was diagnosed or were you not practicing polyamory at all at that point in time? So I was not living my truth at that time. I feel like I've always been polyamorous because I've seen people be out here with multiple people and seeing people cheat and wondering like, why do that? Why can't you just have both? Like, that's how my mind worked. But society was like, no, this is how you do the things. So I didn't, I didn't come out, so to speak, until I was 30. I'm 33 for reference. My husband knew that, you know, I was open to some kind of open relationship. And that was early on in our relationship, but it wasn't something that we both pursued. We were both very in the space of trying to live a life that people expected of us. And so when I decided, I know I'm polyamorous, I'm going to live that way, that was one hell of a transition because it wasn't a, it wasn't a mutual thing. It was a, here's where I am. You can rock with me or you cannot, but I have to be honest. Oh, wow. Okay. But you've known you were pansexual since you were younger. I, I knew I was bisexual. And then when I found the language of pansexual, I was like, oh, that fits me better because all genders. Cool. Yep. All genders, all non-genders. Yeah, all genders, all non-genders, like the spectrum of gender identity. Like I I fucks with it. Once I found the language, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But it also took me a long time to be accepting of the fact that I was bisexual. And, you know, it was easier when the pansexual starting off. It was just like, this is not what people want for me. I was very much a people pleaser and I'm working my way out of that. And that's part of the BPD symptomology, trying to be what other people want you to be so that you'll be loved and cared for. But once I accepted myself in totality, things got a whole lot better for me. Good. Welcome to the party. As a former bisexual, now pansexual myself, I relate to that. (laughs) But I probably, I didn't have that same people pleasing element. It was just, this is a little weird but I'm a rock with it. No one can know that I'm rocking with this mentally, but I'm gonna just do it. That's fine. Thank you, L Word, for bringing the language of bisexual into my life. Yes, L Word was good for something, but Queer as Folk was really where it was at for me. Queer as Folk was fire. But I have to say, let's talk about the problematic elements of Queer as Folk for a second. Brad was in his 30s and Justin was 17. That part. We gotta talk about that. We gotta talk about the fact that this adult and this child were in a thing. And as much as it worked out for them in their relationship, there is still like adults and children. Let's not do that. Just... Very much so. Like he was in high school. Yeah. Like he was literally living with his parents, going to Catholic school every day, school uniform, the whole thing. And let's not do that. I think, I think it was, and in a way, I guess it is predatory of Brian, obviously, but this is also how they characterize Brian as the guy who did whatever the fuck he wanted, whenever he wanted. And he didn't actually know Justin was 17 at the time. He was like, okay, he's an adult. He's 18. He's out here doing whatever. Then it was like, oh, not an adult. Huh. This is fucked up, but I'm just going to roll with it. Because he also was just like, I'm never going to see this kid again. And Justin was like, no, I am in love with you 
after having seen you once. And so I will see you every time I want to. Thank you. And here we are. <laughs> Problematic. Man. But um, I am glad for the representation. And that was one of the shows that kind of helped me come into my acceptance of self, or at least like my private acceptance of self. Yes, we can congratulate the shows for all the amazing things they did and still hold them accountable in the year 2022. Absolutely. Just so people know, this is not, we're not shitting on Queer as Folk. I love Queer as Folk. I will forever love Queer as Folk. I am a toxic Brian Justin fan, like till we die. But I can also just be like, you know? And then Peter mm -hmm. Page, who played Emmett on Queer as Folk, went on to do amazing things with the Fosters and Good Trouble. I didn't yes. know he was still doing stuff. Yes, he's the EP of The Fosters and Good Trouble, which is a spinoff of The Fosters. And The Fosters was a show with two lesbian mamas and their kids. And one of the mamas is black, the other mama is white, and they have kids. And so The Fosters, because also their last name is Foster, and mm -hmm. they oh, also yeah. foster children and adopt them. It's a whole thing. But it, it, that show touched a lot on queer representation, like just generally overall, of course, like you didn't see very many shows on TV that actually have lesbians having children, doing life, and living out loud. That wasn't the salacious L word sort of thing. This is like a family show. <laughs> and so it talks yeah. about the real things that foster kids go through in the system and like getting them placed and getting adopted and navigating all of that stuff. There is some trans representation in there as well. There's a point in time where one of the characters is dating a trans man. They have a conversation about sex as well, where it's like, how do I show up in a sexual way for you? And they had a conversation about like, yeah, we can just talk about this stuff. This is not weird. Let's just talk about it. And then with Good Trouble, they have introduced a polyamorous storyline. So th they're now exploring all these other things that are happening in the world. And I think it's really great. Shout out to Peter Page, AKA Emmett. Nice to see you. Invite me to the set of Good Trouble one day. I'm not an actress, but... I'm funny. Thank you. So we've talked about things that are not related to this, but yes. So you're with your husband, you're diagnosed with BPD. You have now transitioned into operating polyamorously out there in the world, knowing that you are a bisexual, pansexual woman. I'll just use both in this descriptor time. How did the diagnosis change how you related to your husband? First off. He ended up like taking the role of a caretaker in some ways, like an emotional caretaker, where I was more of the kind of household finance caretaker and all of that stuff. So it was him taking care of me so that I could take care of everything else. And that was difficult for both of us. His life history has led him to take on caretakership roles as well as my own. So it was difficult for me and still is to receive care from other people. I'm very much a, I'll go into a hyper-independent, not necessarily healthy, but hyper-independent, I'll do it myself kind of state. But there were some times when I went into that state and I actually literally couldn't move. So he was physically having to assist me in those ways because my body would shut down on me. Not just because of BPD, but also I have like non-epileptic seizures. So that stress, all of that just broke me down for a, a very long time. So yeah, that, 
that impacted our relationship in that way. I know there's a lot of things that I wasn't able to do that he might have enjoyed and I might have enjoyed them with him because of my health. So there was a lot of a lot of things that we did that we ended up having to unlearn. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine having seizures, like having BPD, having the depression, the anxiety, all of these things compounded. And then knowing that once you reach a certain point, your body is like, <laughs> peace out, bitch. All of it's happening at the same time. Like all of this stuff is, is just depression and anxiety first, and then the seizures, and then BPD, and then just dealing with the the side effects from antidepressants and it was a whole lot all around like within three years time and then after that you're just kind of like hey let's be poly that was like seven years into the relationship yeah and at that point you were already married and like you said you were just like this is where yeah. i'm at so either you want to ride this ride or we're done was that ever an option for you were you just like yeah we can divorce and i will be fine yeah, it wasn't just the polyamory piece. It was other things going on that just had me in a space of, I am exhausted and I'm not, I'm not being shown up for in the way that I'm showing up. And I feel like it, my cup is being empty and nothing's being poured back into it. Nothing that I want is being poured into it. Here's how I want my cup filled. I will go fill my cup and be happy. And that was, of course, me starting off not really understanding polyamory, not really understand like understanding how to be ethical. So more, more so understanding ethical non-monogamy, but not really understanding the love piece in polyamory, not really having a grasp of it because of where I was emotionally and, and the depletion I felt. What was that first, I would say that first relationship, maybe not like a first date because first dates are always weird. <laughs> that first relationship where you're like, okay, cool. Getting into this polyamory thing, I'm figuring it out. Like, how did you bring up the conversation that, hey, I also have mental health things that we need to be aware of? Fortunately, my first relationship-ish thing was with a longtime friend. It's with a longtime friend. We don't necessarily call ourselves partners. I'll call him my comet because barely see each other and but the friendship is just super strong and we I, I don't know what to call it most of the time that's what I really I don't know what's called but he knew about my struggles and whatnot and I've always been able to talk to him very openly so there wasn't like a hard conversation you see somebody who I can show up with very candidly see that's lucky you weren't out there trolling the streets just trying to pick up random people and then having to explain to them at that point no not at all yeah it was weird I was like have you always been my like emotional boyfriend? <laughs> and then it was just like, okay, yes. let's just accept that we are where we are. So yeah, I was, I was lucky in that way. So what about the first relationship where you had to explain it? When do you usually disclose it? I usually disclose it very early on. I like to do it within the first three real conversations and I'll speak about it as casually as I speak about how my day is going and I'll let them know if you want to learn more about it. I have resources and all this kind of stuff, but this is important to know because this, this is a disorder. This is a thing that I deal with on a daily basis. This is my life and I navigate my life with it in mind and I navigate the people that I choose to be around with it in mind. It's, it becomes a little challenging sometimes, especially with people's preconceived notions. 
fortunately, I have not had to deal with a lot of backlash about it because of the way I show up. I'm thankful about that. And some people are honest, they're just like, I don't know if I'd be able to deal with that. And I'm like, that's absolutely okay. I want you to do whatever you need for you to be well. And if I am not the right person for you, if I'm not the right fit, then all I can do is wish you well. And sometimes it's not just that they think they can't deal. It might be I think they can't deal. Mm, or I okay, don't that was like my necessarily question. how they're showing up. And I'm like, I, I need to discontinue this conversation because I can tell that we're not aligned. It's not a good match. Because how I need for people to show up in my life, it, it's just, it's not vibing. If I truly think I might, I might have like some mm, doubt, you know, it, this shit gets hectic. Um, <laughs> but then there's like people that I'm like, you know, I don't want you in my corner. That's not a good look for me or my mental health. Let's not. You gotta lay down the law. And that's important yeah. to have that boundary. So I guess I will now try to get a bit deeper into the BPD itself. So we know there are four different types. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Don't worry, y'all. Discouraged, self-destructive, impulsive, and petulant. So those are the four types. Okay, gotcha. So where do you fall in those four types? I am discouraged. First and foremost, that's the one that's considered quiet. So having difficulty making up my mind, bottling up anger until implode or explode, acting out when I feel pushed, and then self-destructive. So all of that leads to me just not being kind to myself mentally or physically. It's just not good. And then I might show signs of impulsivity. Well, hell yeah, I show signs of impulsivity and occasionally being petulant, but the discouraged and self-destructive are the two most prevalent types for me. And so when we say self-destructive, like how far on the scale do we go? I probably haven't talked about it here, but for context, I have disordered eating, which comes from an eating disorder that I had from I was a child. And so as a result, I don't manage food very well ever. And it's complicated, my relationship with food. And I, I will I say all of that to say that was like the beginning of me noticing that I was not right quote unquote, (laughs) there was something not happening the way I needed to happen. And then as I got older, I got into more obvious physical forms of self-harm, cutting things like that, depression, anxiety, all of it, it's all connected. And of course, to that point in that time, I was suicidal for a period of time. I did have a couple of breakdowns and they leveled out more or less now. But I know that there's a part of me that is still drawn to self-harm in a variety of ways. So that is my context for asking this question about how the self-destructive shows up for her, just so everyone knows. I'm not just being nosy. I'm saying this is how it shows up for me in my situations. And I'm wondering how it shows up for you. When we say self-destructive, what does that mean? It can range from the lack of basic self-care all the way to suicidal attempts. I know that I have difficulty eating when I am not well, I will go long periods of time without eating and things that I eat are not necessarily good for me. Or I eat a lot. That happens on the flip side on occasion. The self-harm piece with hitting, cutting, you know, different types of impact. But I want to explain this a little bit though. If you go onto Google and you look up what is the most painful mental health disorder or or anything like that, BPD is going to come up. It is 
chronic, it can physically cause you pain to the point where, for me, physical pain helps balance the emotional pain that I'm feeling. One of the reasons why I got into kink. So I, I noticed that the, the cutting, the sharp feelings help bring me down from a heightened emotional state or help, help level me out or balance me. But that's not necessarily healthy. I am not recommending that. Please don't do that. And don't tell nobody that I said to do that because that is not what I am saying to you all out there listening to this. What I'm saying is I had to find ways to cope. Just like anybody who has a struggle, a chronic health issue, who is looking for ways to not be in pain and doesn't have the, the resources, looks for ways to reduce that pain. That's what I've done. And, and then suicidal attempts. I claim the fact that I am suicidal. That does not mean necessarily that I am always trying to hurt myself, trying to kill myself. But it is a state of understanding that this is what my mind does. There's a person on Twitter, Joe Tresini, who has these BPD videos that are kind of comedic, but they're very real as far as how the brain works. Some people can relate to this if you're like driving a car and you just randomly think, oh, I should run this into a pole. Imagine that happening on a regular basis, on a daily basis, with any thought that you have being paired with this intrusive, hurtful thought of you should hurt yourself or you don't belong here, nobody loves you, just all of these wild and hurtful things that cause pain happening on a constant basis. And that'll leave you in a state of feeling like yo, I can beat myself off this balcony and be perfectly fine with my decision. Thanks to therapy, the intrusive thoughts are not as bad. They don't stay as long. It's like it's given me a sword to just swing around and battle the, battle the sads, battle the hurts. Thank you so much for sharing that. You say you're on antidepressants as well, but we also know I antidepressants, but well, you were. Was. Not on antidepressants now. And I know that's a decision that my psychiatrist does not like, but my, my therapist is okay with because therapy weekly is helpful. But in the time that I was taking antidepressants, they worked for a while, but as I increased in the, the amount of it, or as I uh, changed them over from Prozac to Zoloft to Effexor, Effexor had me feeling like a zombie and I was on that for about a year. It really changed my ability to interact with people. It changed my sex drive. It changed my ability to sleep. It changed my ability to laugh. And that was where I made the decision to get off of antidepressants. When I was listening to something and I was like, that sounds funny. It sounds really funny. I should laugh. And the thought wouldn't transfer and I couldn't laugh. I was like, this is not a life worth living. I cannot live a life where I cannot laugh. It's just, it's not worth it to me. It might be worth it to somebody else, but it was not worth it to me. You, you know, I have the giggles. Yeah, no, <laughs> I would giggle at every fucking thing. I love that about me. I was like, it's taking away everything that I find joy in just to leave me feeling empty and depressed. So... I ended up using marijuana to, to transition. And I, I thank my uncle who 
you know, recently passed, unfortunately, but he was the person that recommended that I start using marijuana as a way to help with my seizures and possibly help with my depression. And after talking with a doctor and trying different things, I was able to use that to transition off of antidepressants. And that's been a beautiful journey. It's been, I have my laugh back. But, you know, shout out to the people who do take antidepressants and it's working for them and they're living the lives that they want to live. It's for some people. It's for, it's not for some people. It's for some people and those that need it and want it. I hope that they're able to get it. Yes, absolutely. But um, on the medication too, there is no one medication that is proven to work for BPD. There's things for depression, there's things for bipolar disorder, but there's not a medication that is actually noted to work for BPD. They just be trying shit and hoping that it sticks. Oh, so we're just throwing shit at the wall and just be like, oh, maybe this will work. Yeah, because the way our our brain literally changes. So I, I believe it's like a smaller amygdala and something else, a hyperactive something. I can't remember all the parts, but it literally changes the way that our brain works and the sizes of certain things in our brain. Yeah, The, the antidepressants don't necessarily work specifically for BPD, but for symptomology that is that looks were comorbid with BPD. Thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate you coming on camera and sharing these things because this is not an easy subject to talk about. But you do talk about this publicly on your social media pages, correct? I do on my main social media page, which is my name. I, I do journal entries, basically. I do public journal entries about what's happening for me, what's going on when I go to the doctor, what's happening if I'm being hospitalized, how is this affecting my relationships with people, whether they're my partners, my family, my friends, whatever, how I'm feeling in the moment and how I'm working through it. And I think that's a big piece, the how am I working through this really hard and shitty moment. And part of the reason I do it is because it's just cathartic for me to be able to express it and be like, this is what I'm going through. But the other part is having people who read it and can see themselves in it and can realize that they're not alone. Somebody else is really experiencing something that you can deeply relate to and is working through it in real time. It's not just you. It's not a a cross that that you have to bear alone. I think that you probably reach way more people than you think you do as well. Of course, not everyone going through this thing is going to comment or anything, but do you get messages from people saying that, oh, thank you so much for sharing this. I've been feeling this way. You've helped me realize what's going on with me. I've gotten a few of those and I've had conversations with people wanting to just share with me what's going on with their mental health and provided that in a mental state to be able to receive their information. I'm always happy to sit with people and just hold space for them. Not even give advice if they're not asking for it. Just sit here and listen and be like, yeah, no, I totally feel you and you got this. You're not alone. Like I see you over here working. I see you over here struggling and trying and doing your best. And so I hope it, I hope it reaches people. I hope information like the stuff that I share reaches people because a whole lot of people are out here struggling with shit we know nothing about. And especially in Black culture where mental health is just now becoming a thing that we acknowledge as something that is legitimate and worthy of attention and assistance and care and love. I think it's important that Black people and Brown people are speaking about their experiences and being able to connect with other 
people who may be experiencing the same things and may not have the support or the resources that they have. I know I have one hell of a support system. Like period, point blank, I have a care team. I have a team of people starting with my mama, extending to my partners, extending to my friends, my, my metamors, who are also my friends, who care for me and who will reach each other in an effort to make sure that they can support me in some way, form, or fashion. People who will go with me to the doctor or recommend a doctor who will let me know, hey, you need to schedule a therapy appointment. You need to do that like today. People who hold me accountable and remind me that I need to do the, I have that. And I know not everybody has that. Yeah. Too many people don't have that, to, to be yeah. honest. And I plot all the people in your life who are on your team who are like, yes, this is how we support and show up for you. So you mentioned mom, you mentioned your partners, you mentioned your metas who are also your friends and your friends. So how many people would you say is officially like on the care team? Look, I have a whole health guide. Oh, a health guide. I have a health guide specifically for my health. That is about 23 pages. It's extended since the last time we talked. It's 23 pages and it includes a, in case of emergency Mm. kind of call thing. So if you can't deal with me right now, that's fine. Call somebody who can, and that can be a hotline or whatever, just whomever. I'm going to say, I can't find the page. I don't know why I didn't just go to the table of contents and click the button where I have. Do you have a table of contents too? Like it's a detailed, it's a detailed care plan. When I do things, I do them. They are done. So on this particular list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people. And probably have a few more that aren't listed. So I have, I have ten, 10 emergency contacts. All of them can reach at least one other person. Yeah, because that's also important, right? It, making sure that your contacts are connected to each other. So it's not just all oh, your metas are connected to the particular partner that they're also dating. It's like they have to be able to connect to your other partners as well, or to your mom or to other friends who are within the vicinity. So is your care team like scattered across the country or is it more like concentrated in one place? Just everyone's everywhere. (laughs) I've got people in LA, which is where I'm from. Seattle, my best friend is out there. DMV, which is where my partner is, who I also live with. So I'm by coastal and I live in LA and Maryland. Atlanta, which is where another one of my partners is. So yeah, most of the people are based in LA, but I I have people that are scattered. And one of the things that I've found is really important to me as I am out here in these poly streets is if you are not comfortable with being able to reach at least one of my people on my care team and that includes a partner in the case of an emergency then we can't rock with each other and vice versa i need to be able to if you're with me we're out somewhere something happens say you're in an ambulance and we're on the way to the hospital if i can't reach one of your folks to let them know what's going on especially if they're like your medical proxy or whatever i can't reach them i don't want them to do with that not at all. Yeah. Thinking about it, if you are with someone, if you are linked to someone, there should be a way for you to reach out to that emergency contact. 
Yeah. You're actually... I'm like, we, we don't have to be friends. I, I like being friends with my partner's people, though. That's my preference. But I'm also not pushing it, you know? Metamorbidal rights. But I am like, I, I want to be able to... So here's where that first thought came from. So when my spouse had his first partner, my thing was, if he is with me, he's my husband, whatever, he is with me, and something happens to him, and he's in the hospital, how dare I not reach out to the other people that love him and care for him, including her? How dare she not be able to come in and sit with him and hold space with him and for him as a person that loves and cares for him? Yeah. So the way that I practice polyamory is that my love extends. It's just not, it's not just for my partners. It's for everybody in my partner's lives, family, friends, other partners. My, my love has to be extended and, and shown through action. And it's not going to be no special friend in the obituary or anything like we, we don't oh, do that. No dear friend, no. <laughs> Patricia and Patricia's not three children. <laughs> Eeny, Manny, and Mo. Not at all. I'm like, no, we, although my husband and I are married, we don't practice hierarchy within ourselves. We, we may own a home together, but not that's, that's a different kind of hierarchy. But as far as a love and care and show up for other people in our lives hierarchy, we are very separate practicing. <laughs> like we, we acknowledge our, our individualness. I know a lot of Married couples are seen as one unit. No, we're not. We are individuals and we have our coupleships with other people, including each other. And they're all equally important. Yeah, I think you being bicoastal probably helps a bit in that. And I say that because a lot of people, when they live in the same place as their spouse, like 24-7, 365, and especially when their children are involved, because there are different levels of hierarchy. We can talk mm -hmm. about the, oh, we're married hierarchy. Like, fine, you are legally bound together by law that you are married. And there is a perceived emotional attachment to that. Then there's the we're married and live together hierarchy, where you share physical space together. You share bills, you share those things like that. And then there's, the, oh, we have kids together as well, where you now have other tiny humans who depend on you to mm -hmm. have a certain hierarchy in a certain way that makes that work. And so there's just, there are so many levels to hierarchy that people don't explore, I find. And I've had conversations with Shanae about this. Everyone knows that. We had a conversation about hierarchy. But in my opinion, there should be no hierarchy when it comes to love and care. Like you said, there, yeah. there is no hierarchy but there. You may share certain things with certain people, but that doesn't mean that person is more important than the next. And so yes. I don't like that he's more important because he's this. No, 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 no. She's more important because she's where? Oh, well, thank you. I'm my primary. You are and your primary. So, so it's like a solo poly sort of thing while being married. Yeah. And I know some people are like, you know, solo poly people can't be married. And I'm like, okay, I move very solo outside of the fact that I own property with another person and share bills and everything else is up to change. Even that is up to change. It all depends on how I want to do things, but I've learned how to put myself in a position where I'm like, okay. I'm first for me. What do I want? What do I want to hold close? Who do I want closest to me? And I do that not based off of them and their title or whatever and how they relate to me, but what's true for me. Mm -hmm. So as long as I keep, keep myself and my authentic desire and ethics 
in the center. I'm like, go. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good to me. It makes sense to me. In a sense, there's going to be a conversation later on down the line, just so everyone knows about solo poly people who are married. Okay. Because the reason why I mentioned that is just because there are some people who say they're solo poly, but the hierarchy matters more than anything else, which is complicated. Complicated. It, it is. Hold on. Let, let me throw another wrench in your, in your machine. So I am also in a power exchange relationship with someone who is not my husband. And so there is a practice hierarchy within the space of a dominant submissive relationship. And so navigating that very hierarchical space while also being a polyamorous person who doesn't practice hierarchy in love is hard as hell to navigate. <laughs> yeah. See, now I have more questions. I have more questions <laughs> because Everyone knows I'm a baby king. I don't know anything. So I'm, I, if it's a stupid question, you can just tell me. In love, which we just discussed, there is no hierarchy there. So there is no, oh, my best friend is more important or my husband is more important or my other partners are more important. Okay. So in a DS dynamic, there is a hierarchy that exists there. Yes. And can, I guess it can, but how... Does that affect the other elements of non-hierarchy in your life? And I'm asking it that way because I, I don't want to assume, but because I know that you are the S in this scenario. Yes, so someone in this else, particular scenario, I, I am the S. You are the S um, and someone's the D. And so they have a power, quote unquote, over you, even though I don't like to phrase it that way. But yes, over I, you. I exchange authority. Or power with them. It's given freely by me to them and received freely by them from me. How I hold this. I am always my primary. I'm always my first everything. And as my primary, I choose to prioritize my power exchange because of who I am when I'm in it, who I want to be as my authentic self. That's me being within the space of my integrity. When I am prioritizing that space, that self, I am at my most honest. And, and, and I'm at a place where I feel the best about myself, about life. So that's, prioritizing that is my way of taking care of myself and my way of honoring myself. That does not diminish any of the other relationships that I have. And it feeds the part of myself that is, I'm going to say, just super important. Like I, of course, can live without it. But in my, like, in my emotional space, I'm like, yo, I need to be able to show up in my submission the way I need to be able to eat food in the morning. And that's just what it is for me. And the people in my life are aware of that. They are aware of how it affects me and how it helps me to show up to everybody else in my life when I'm in a good space in that, when I'm honoring that part of myself. Okay. I think I got it. I think I got it. it it's connecting and it's making sense in that way. So is this DS dynamic separate from a partnership or is that baked into one of your partnerships that you have? 
it's one of my partnerships. Okay. Because that was going to be my other yeah. question. I'm like, if this is separate outside of that, that's a whole other conversation. Our life is so blended <laughs> at this point. The way that we relate and connect and the parts of our lives that are integrated, it's just the way our relationship is. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, that can't be separated in a sense. So if you were- It can to, be separated, but we don't want to. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> like it can I, that, be separated. That, that would be hard if we yeah. were to be egal egalitarian partners after being in this power exchange relationship, which we have because we've had to work through some things. But being in an egalitarian space just feels so unnatural for me, at least, with this particular partner. I'm like, you know- I like it. <laughs> I like it. So what do we need to do? How, what work do we need to do to get back to where we're both in a space of being in integrity with ourselves and showing up the way that we know we want to show up? So, yeah, it, it can be separated, but I don't want that shit. Yeah, listen, that was my question. I was just like, I don't know how this works, but if you were to separate, if you were to be like, ah, I want to end this power exchange with this partner, like how would that look? Or if you were to end the romantic relationship, how would that affect the power exchange? See, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Because mm. that, I guess that's like the real thing. If your romantic relationship were to end, would the power exchange still exist? Would you be able to operate in that space with that person? I know I could. I know that it would be very difficult for me. It's not that I have to be in any power exchange and have romance be a part of it, but because it has been a part of our relationship from jump to separate that or to remove that, I don't think that would feel, I don't think that would feel authentic for either of us. That just doesn't mm -hmm. feel. Yeah. <laughs> and they can go scrub somebody's floors and, and not be in a romantic relationship with them. But no, I adore the ground this man walks on and I want to be able to be in all my flowery headspace while I'll be in my servy headspace and all that because I want it all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That's enough about my invasive questions about the DS dynamic, which is not the topic <laughs> of this episode. Like I said, I just, you brought it up and I was like, wait a minute. I could tie it into mental health. Okay, so, tie it in, tie it together. Let's do it. So what happens for us is that sometimes it is hard for me to show up in my ass because I'm having a mental health struggle. There are mornings where I can't get up or where I'm inundated with invasive thoughts that I cannot follow directions. And so it takes a very special person <laughs> to sit here and like work with me as I'm working through a battle with myself and still call me a good girl. It's a challenge to be an S-type with a disability and I'm sure it is even more of a challenge to be a D-type of a person with a disability and to feel responsible for them and to want to see to their their well-being and unfortunately seeing that something else has more control over them than the control that they've given you and having to contend with that power struggle because of health not because of the person's desire to be in a struggle but because this person is struggling with something else that can be greater than the both of you so 
that let me go ahead and recommend some books <laughs> um, yeah because i was going to say like how do we navigate yeah. that space what are some book recommendations what are some tips and tricks you want to give to the people yeah for my kinky folks i'm going to say raven caldera has four books two for d types two for s types and two of those books are on mental health disabilities and two of those books are on physical health disabilities those are super helpful the Insult by Orpheus Black is not necessarily centered on mental health, but it is centered on S-types being in their S-space. It's, it's a philosophy of sorts that has really helped me to be able to navigate the, the complexities of it all. I'm trying to see, let me look at my little list. Oh, Power Circuits, uh, another one by Raven Caldera. Power Circuits, Polyamory in a Power Dynamic. That one was the read for me because it is very hard being in a power exchange dynamic when I also am like autonomy and polyamory and I already have other partners and I'm married and all this other stuff. It gets complex and it can take a toll on your mental health if you're not clear on who you are, where you are, what you want and able to set boundaries with people and really negotiate with people, whether, and that's for kink or not, just really negotiating your relationships to take into account the things that you both want and need. I've learned from kink, I negotiate all my relationships. If, if we're gonna have some kind of a, some kind of a thing, I'm pulling out this relationship smorgasbord that I found from some relationship anarchy site and I'm like, okay, I'm going to highlight all the stuff I want with you. You can highlight all the stuff you want with me and we can talk about it. Because I like clarity. Clarity has been so helpful for me and my little overactive brain. I don't want to have to wonder what things are and whatnot. Because then my brain will start telling me stuff like, you don't like me. You know, you, know, you haven't texted me in three minutes. You probably like aren't going to talk to me ever again. It's, it's just so weird. So I'm like, okay, these are the tools that I use to navigate relationships with people in general as a person with BPD. Gotcha. Gotcha. And if there is one bit of advice you would give to people supporting someone with BPD, what would that be? Take care of yourself. Do not be so into caring for this other person that you love, that you forget to care for you. And that includes receiving care from your community. I've noticed my partners being so hyper-focused on making sure I'm okay and not paying attention to their own struggle from watching and experiencing me struggle. And so that's been something that we've all been navigating and, and working to learn. So I'm like, people need people to vent to, people need people to get advice from, People need people to sit with them. People need people to pass the baton to, which is why I'm like, I need people to be able to call other people if necessary, because it is hard. Just like any other disease affects a person and the people around them. If the person has you know, cancer is usually the one that's used. If a person has cancer, it's not just affecting the person that's you know got the cancer in their body. It's affecting everybody that person is loved Everybody who wants to see that person, we all have to be mindful that these people that love us also need care. I'm fortunate that the 
people who are closest to me and who are able to give me the the highest level of support also have a therapist of their own. They also have friend groups of their own that they can talk to. They have each other that they can talk to. My sir will text my husband because my husband's been in this for so long that he's got his own system and has his own translation methods for the things that I say and do. They can text each other and be of support to each other. My meta will reach out to me because my partner has texted her saying that I need a hug, even if it's over the phone, I just need a hug. It's so much more healthy and it's so much more manageable when there's other people to help carry the load and to share the love with. That's powerful. I'm probably not going to quote the whole thing, but I'll quote a solid portion of that in the show notes <laughs> for other people. No, let's put that together. It'll be the transcript though when the transcript eventually comes out. So, DA, thank you so much for showing up today, talking about your business and all that. Can you tell the people where they can find you if you're open to being found on social media? You can find me at D period A period Rogers on Facebook. Yeah, on Facebook. And that is it for now. Oh, for now. So there's a plan for the future. There is a plan for the future. Loose plan, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. I don't know. Nope. That's it. That's good enough for me. I'm just saying. So when the future <laughs> happens, y'all, if the future happens, I'm going to have the inside scoop. I'm breaking the news out in the stratosphere. That's all I have to say with DA today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Once again, I would love to thank DA for joining me on this episode today. You can find the link to DA's Facebook page on the detailed show notes on the website, monogamishpod.com. And since we're talking about where you can find the podcast, let me just give you all the socials. You can find Monogamish Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monogamish Pod. You can also watch all the episodes from season three. Well, most of them. And I'm working on uploading all the other ones from seasons one and two on our YouTube channel. Just search Monogamish Pod subscribe and there you will have all the goodness where you can see my face you can also listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts but to be honest my preference is spotify but that's just because i want your engagement on the polls and the bonus questions and things like that that's all that's my only reason but you can listen to it wherever you get your pods you can rate review and subscribe to us on apple Podcasts if you want that would be nice there's pod chaser pod bean pod bay stitcher the list goes on Overcast is a really popular one I've heard. Just saying, wherever you can get us, that's where I want you to have us. Of course, we host our podcast using Anchor. So you can always go to anchor.fm slash monogamishpod and you can find us. And while you're on the Anchor page, you might notice a button that says support. And that is where you can offer financial support to the podcast for as low as 99 cents a month. Not even a whole dollar, y'all. But if you're willing to spend more money to get more things, because of course, you know, I mean, you can give us the 99 cents out of the goodness of your heart, or you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash monogamish pod, where you can get blog posts, bonus content, bloopers, photos, access to the close friends list on Instagram and access to the private discord server. That's a lot you can get there. And that starts as low as $3 a month. So remember patreon.com slash monogamish pod, 18 plus platform. Can't go any better than that. Of course, you could also buy things from our merch shop, monogamishpod.threadless.com. I got mugs, tote bags, shirts, 
pretty sure I have face masks on there. Don't quote me on that though. More than likely I do. And you can just rep Monogamish Pod wherever you go out there in this world. Also, it'd be great if you could tell a friend and share the episodes of the podcast. Every like count towards making us more discoverable and puts your friend onto some really cool stuff too, if I do say so myself. <laughs> it's me. I'm the cool thing. I'm, I'm, I'm the cool thing. Also, thank you to everyone who has already subscribed to the Monogamish Pod newsletter. The first edition was a doozy to get out with all that information from the past couple of months, but don't worry. The one from May coming out on the 31st is going to be a lot shorter. <laughs> you can subscribe today if you haven't already at monogamishpod.substack.com and look out for issue two out on midnight Eastern Standard Time, May 31st, 2022. Sounds good? Okay. Now let's talk about where you can just find moi out there in the ether. If you want to just talk to Jen about anything that's not poly related, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at have you met Jen with the J-H-E-N obviously. Pretty much what I talk about is romance novels and other books and movies and TV shows and things. And now as a reminder, there will be no new episodes of the podcast coming out in June. I have a very heavy workload and I'm not able to keep up with brand new content for you, but I will be re-releasing some older episodes that I thought maybe didn't get enough love last time or were your favorites. Which one will they be? I'm not going to tell you in advance. You'll just have to wait and see. So do not turn away from Monogamish Pod for the month of June. There will be things coming out, but they might be things you've heard already or older episodes you've never heard before because you didn't go all the way into the backlist, which, to be honest, I understand. But anyway, that's all I have today. Those links will be in the detailed show notes, like I said, on monogamishpod.com. But really, I just want to thank everyone for supporting the pod once again. I'm Jen, this is Monogamish Pod, and you have a great week. Bye, everyone.